I'm Bonnie Glazer, Director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we will explore the importance of language in interpreting China's international cooperation and diplomacy. As China's economic power has grown, so too has its desire to build discursive power. China has tried to co-opt terms like democracy and human rights to limit risk to the Chinese Communist Party's domestic legitimacy. At the same time, the Chinese are increasingly pushing their own terminology and interpretations to promote China's right to speak and to shape international norms that underpin the international order. As a result, competition over the definition of international values and standards has intensified. The meaning of terms such as the rule of law, human rights, and sovereignty have increasingly blurred, and international norms are being contested. Governments, NGOs, think tanks, and experts who want to engage with China on global issues need to be able to correctly read and understand Chinese messaging. To discuss the importance of language in interpreting China's diplomacy and approach to international cooperation, I'm joined by Malin Out. Malin is the director of the Stockholm office of the Raoul Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law. She was the founder and managing director of Track Two Sweden, and was previously the program manager for the Swedish International Development Cooperation Agency. Her most recent report, which we are going to talk about today, is called "The Decoding China Dictionary," and it was co-edited with Katja Drinhausen. Malin, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Bonnie. Thank you for having me. So let's start by talking about the genesis of this project. Why did you and your colleague write the Decoding China Dictionary? As you say, there has been over the last ten years or so increasing competition in a multipolar world about what these international terms and concepts that we use frequently in international relations and development cooperation. And the co-authors behind this dictionary, we are based in Europe, in Stockholm, and in Berlin, and we've felt that the European China debate about engaging with China has been rather plagued by oversimplifications, truisms, and platitudes. Like China is both an opportunity and a challenge, and we have to engage with China because China is so big. And of course, we're not against、uh, engagement with China per se. We've been engaging with China, all of us, professionally for decades. But we would like to see much more informed engagement based on a solid understanding of Chinese policy, Chinese interests, and motivations. So the terms that we cover in the dictionary they are used both by Western liberal democracies and by China. The same words, but they mean very different things. And we believe it's really important to understand the Chinese official meaning of these terms. What does Xi Jinping mean when he talks about the rule of law? How does China define multilateralism? What is meant by a community of shared future for mankind, and so forth? And we hope that this dictionary can then serve as a guide for policymakers and anyone really involved with China. We hope it can decipher Chinese terms and sort of help navigate the official discourse landscape and help people see the ideological iceberg below the surface of these seemingly neutral or apolitical terms. 
So let's dig into a couple of the terms. Let's start with the term democracy, minzhu. The Chinese, of course, have been criticizing U.S. democracy recently, saying that the United States is not delivering good governance to its people. And we saw this at the recent meeting between U.S. and Chinese officials in Anchorage. And, you know, if we go back to the founding of the Chinese Communist Party, they said that they were building a people's democracy. But then years later, you know, we have uh, document number nine, which defines liberal democracy as incorrect ideological thinking that must be met with determined resistance. So how should we view China's definition of democracy and what does it mean for the kind of engagement that we do with China? Yes, you're very right. I think recently, I mean, there's also around the National People's Congress that took place recently in Beijing. There was this phrase about chaos in the West and order in the East. And of course, when China talks about the West, it's often the US it's referring to. But I don't think most policymakers in Europe or the US know that democracy and freedom are actually core socialist values. And of course, I don't think anyone thinks that China means the same thing as Western liberal democracies when it talks about democracy. But I think reading domestic discourse and narratives around these terms is really important because it gives important clues to what direction domestic politics are taking. And I think under Xi Jinping, we've definitely seen a move towards greater concentration of power under one man, whereas before, China's always talked a lot about democracy, actually, but before there was much more talk about intra-party democracy, democracy within the party, and that's shifted in the last 10 years. And China's now also, interestingly, talking more and more about democracy at the UN and China's right to speak in international settings. So this relates to this contest between different political systems and China demands respect for China's version of democracy, that all countries, all political systems should respect each other. And recently also the term was relevant in relation to the uh, new improved election system in Hong Kong that was decided on at the National People's Congress. So, yeah, it's an important and rather central concept in Chinese both domestic and international discourse. Let me ask you about the concept or phrase of win-win cooperation. The Chinese have used this for some time. It applies to things like Belt and Road projects, and it's frequently set against what they describe as like old or zero sum or Western dominated forms of diplomacy. So they present themselves as offering something that sounds like it's being more generous <laughs> than the West is. But in practice, I don't think this is something that's well understood, but occasionally we hear Westerners describe this concept is meaning that China wins twice. Win-win is China wins both times. Is that correct? Or how would you describe how China thinks about and applies this concept? Well, it's sort of a central part of the concept of shared destiny and this idea that all countries should respect each other's political International relations and cooperation shouldn't be politicized, and there's not one definition of democracy. There aren't universal values. And even recently that the Chinese political model is superior. So Chinese democracy is the most 
efficient democracy is something that Xi Jinping has been saying lately as well. So the sort of win-win cooperation, the argument there is that in international organizations, we should start criticizing each other. The West shouldn't politicize human rights. And we should all instead have mutually beneficial cooperation based on common values rather than universal values. And I think one very interesting sort of example of how China envisions this win-win cooperation is that just this week, a group of European academics and parliamentarians were sanctioned by China and a professor of international relations in Beijing, who used to be a diplomat, he said that these sanctioned European academics and parliamentarians were stumbling blocks to future cooperation that needed to be removed and eliminated. So it really is about state-focused, status notion of sovereignty, of international relations, of public diplomacy even, that is focused on like-minded governments getting together, not politicizing things, but uh, sort of working together for mutual benefit. So China's concept of human rights obviously has, they've been pushing this in the UN and other places and trying to redefine what human rights means and arguing that the right to subsistence and the right to development are really foremost in the UN core human rights conventions. And they say that China has to break the West's human rights hegemony. So this is different, I think, from what China originally said. Uh, going back to 1991, China published a white paper on human rights. And at that time, it signaled that China seemed to be moving away from a previous rejection of human rights as bourgeois. And under Hu Jintao, there was discussion of maybe accepting universal human rights. So I'm curious why you think that this shift took place. And then secondly, how much progress China is making in the UN and internationally in redefining human rights? Yeah, you could definitely say there's been a shift both in 1991 after Tiananmen, where China during the 1990s and up until the early 2000s accepted even if it was partial and perhaps reluctant, it accepted international standards and actually ratified a number of core human rights conventions. So China signed and ratified, for example, the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, but it signed but did not ratify the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. So it's always been a, a sort of partial acceptance but it did acknowledge universal values, or it didn't reject universal values, at least. And that shifted. I'd say an important shift was around 2008, both because of color revolutions that took place and this perceived external threat, and also because of the global financial crisis, where China felt that its model of focusing on, on economic development was working and was superior. And China emphasized in 2013 that China should be confident and proud of its own political system. So there was a shift. And I think in the very last five or six years, now China's ready to not just be a rule taker, but wants to be a rule maker in many different areas and the standard sector, including on human rights. 
So China has successfully inserted Chinese concepts like win-win cooperation and shared destiny into human rights resolutions at the UN, which is an interesting development. So I think China is now saying that we're a global actor in a multipolar world. We want to set standards. We want to be a rule maker. And with that, also dismissing these universal values and the UN conventions as Western and that they've been based on American leadership, Pax Americana. So now China's ready to export or promote a Chinese model instead. After the protests and the massacre at Tiananmen Square in June of 1989, China established the State Council Information Office and said that it was going to use public diplomacy to engage with foreign audiences and tell China's story well. And we know that Xi Jinping has been emphasizing that China needs to tell its story well. So how is China's own concept of public diplomacy different from that of Western countries? And how should China's strategy of public diplomacy be understood and be interacted with by foreigners? Yeah, I mean, public diplomacy in a Swedish or European or American sense is very different. It's people to people diplomacy. So it's diplomacy that civil society organizations, academics, people take on with other countries. And just like in China's conception of the media or rule of law or civil society, China's notion of public diplomacy is also that it needs to be government-led and that it should be employed to tell China's story well. So it's not about sort of having many different voices or aspects of the country and society represent China, but as in all other areas, the party state sees itself as the only legitimate representative of the people and therefore China's people-to-people diplomacy or public diplomacy also must be directed by the party and, and the government. There's been some discussion in Europe, and I know also in the States, where we've said we need to sort of build in the US and in liberal democracies, we need to build a counter narrative to China's narrative. But I'm not convinced about this idea because that's not how democracies work. So I don't think that's the way to sort of compete with China about creating narratives. And it's not how democracies work with public diplomacy. It is messy. There are many voices. There's not just one narrative or story directed from above, but that's how it works in China. And that's how China works with its public diplomacy. I want to talk a little bit about China's concept of Ifa Zhigo which I guess they would like us to think means rule of law. Yeah, it's often translated into English as rule of law. But we argue in our dictionary that it's probably because it's so far from the liberal democratic concept of rule of law, it should probably not be translated as rule of law, but rather as law-based governance, I think is a good translation. Well, I remember years ago, people distinguished between rule of law and rule by law. I don't know if that's really quite correct either. Yeah, I think that's just a bit confusing. So I, I don't think if anyone outside the small China specialist circle actually gets the difference then. So I, I think it's better to say ruling the country according to law or law-based governance. 
Talk a little bit about why this distinction is important and whether China is has been successful in persuading other countries to adopt its definition. So the UN definition or how rule of law is defined in liberal democracies is that it's principle where all persons and entities, whether they're public or private, including the state and the government itself, are accountable to laws. So no one is above the law, basically. And of course, in China, the party is above the law. And this is not just me as a critical China analyst saying this. This is how the party state describes the meaning of the law. This is Xi Jinping's thought on the rule of law, is that the law is a tool or a method by which the party rules. So that is a completely different definition and function of law than we have in the West. And I think something that is important and interesting here is that we actually saw in the 1980s, after sort of the disasters under one-man rule under Mao Zedong, we saw an effort in China among lawyers, in the party, in government, to depoliticize the law in China. So, I mean, there was a new constitution, many laws were developed, law schools were reestablished, etc. But in the last 10 or so years, we have seen a repoliticization or partification of law. And there's also been a series of security related legislation in China, the most recent being, of course, the national security law in Hong Kong but also in many other areas. So both sort of codifying, using the law to codify, justify and maintain one party rule and using the law as a law for party rule. You mentioned the recent sanctions that China's now imposed on the EU and uh, on the UK. And of course, they say it was in retaliation for the sanctions that the EU put on uh, Chinese officials for human rights abuses in Xinjiang. And I wonder if you think that a better understanding of how China thinks about human rights and rule of law or <laughs> rule by governance, whether you think that this would lead to better policy in handling China's human rights violations. What might officials and countries do differently if they really understand what these concepts mean? This goes runs across all the different terms that we discuss in the dictionary, and it's related to the bigger debate about whether we have been naive uh, in our engagement with China, whether our engagement has been based on wishful thinking about where China was heading. And I think there has been definitely wishful thinking, but I also think there's been a level of hypocrisy I have this fantastic cover of an economist issue from 1997 when Hong Kong was returned to China after the 150 years of British rule. And it says basically on the cover, there's a man in front of a tank and he's holding a bag of money in, in one hand and the symbol for rule of law in the other. And it says Hong Kong will change China. So the idea that Hong Kong returning back to the PRC would mean that China would become more democratic. And I think, yes, maybe naivety, maybe some wishful thinking, but also a level of hypocrisy or willful ignorance about the relationship between sort of doing business and trade with China and whether that would lead automatically to 
sort of a more open or freer or democratic China. So I think there is definitely a need to be more realistic, both about our own possibilities to impact and what are leverage points and how do we use those strategically. But of course, it's also very important to think about how we in Europe and the US, how we relate to international human rights conventions and that we make sure that we are not just selecting the conventions that we sort of like more or like less. I mean, it is problematic, for example, that the US has only ratified the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. It would be really helpful if the US also ratified the one on economic, social and cultural rights. So if all countries could stop this selective sort of picking the rights that they favor, that would also help defend the notion of universal values. So let me ask you one last question, Malin, if I can. And that is really the policy question of what are the leverage points since you referred to using our leverage and just trying to care very much about its international reputation. You take an issue like the internment camps in Xinjiang and how China is treating the Uyghurs. What do you think is the most effective way of influencing China's policies, uh, the way that it treats its own people and the way that it approaches human rights at home and in the international community? That is a huge and really, really important question. (laughs) I think, of course, our small contribution here with the dictionary is, of course, only one very, very small piece in the bigger puzzle. And within the EU, there's a lot of discussion now on developing the toolbox for how we engage with China. And it includes both sanctions, it includes regulations on investment screening. So, I mean, we have a lot of work to do in Europe in sort of building our own democratic resilience. I think definitely one should focus on our democratic resilience rather than trying to change China, I think the focus needs to be on strengthening our own capacities, strengthening our own knowledge. And then, of course, there are people we should partner with in China. I mean, we've worked and so has many universities and civil society organizations over the past 20, 30 years have had wonderful collaborations with excellent Chinese legal scholars to improve legislation in China. So, I mean, that work should continue. And that's why it's very important for me also to point out that I think it's a dead end, the sort of discussion whether we should isolate China or we should work with China. I think more informed engagement is the way to go. And for that to happen, we need to develop a solid toolbox at home for democratic resilience. And we also need to continue to collaborate with academics, civil society organizations and government in China. The report is fantastic. I'll remind our listeners it's called the Decoding China Dictionary, and I hope that it will be read far and wide. (laughs) We have been talking with Malin Out, who is the director of the Stockholm office of the Raoul Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you so much, Bonnie. And you can find the dictionary at decodingchina.eu. I'm closing today with a bittersweet farewell to China Power podcast listeners. It's been a wonderful journey, and I'm grateful to all the experts who have contributed to expanding knowledge and understanding of China. 
I would also like to thank all of our listeners. My study of China will continue even as I close this chapter. I plan to start another podcast in the coming weeks, so stay tuned. It will be hosted at the German Marshall Fund, where I will be the new director of the Asia program. Until we meet again, au revoir, 再见 Bonnie Glaser signing off. Thank you, Bonnie. I'm Andrew Schwartz for the Center for Strategic and International Studies with a brief programming note. We're sorry to see Bonnie depart, but excited to continue learning from her as she continues her work at the German Marshall Fund. Meanwhile, listeners, fear not. The China Power podcast will continue right here at CSIS. So stay tuned to this feed for new episodes in the coming weeks, as well as information about how to subscribe to Bonnie's new podcast for the German Marshall Fund.